If you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to Romans chapter 9 this morning. Lord willing, we will be concluding chapter 9 as well as launching into chapter 10. We're going to do both this morning. We're going to read from Romans chapter 9 beginning in verse 30. And we're going to follow down into chapter 10 and conclude with verse 4. Follow along in your copy of the scriptures. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Would you pray with me? And we thank you for the privilege of worshiping you in song and taking the elements we want to stay in the spirit of worship as we turn now to your word and ask that you would attend to the reading of your word with your Holy Spirit to give us understanding, but more than that, so that it might reap eternal fruit for you. And Lord, that your kingdom might be built in and through us as a result of the transformation that you effect in our lives and in our heart directly from this word. So we thank you for this book that we hold in our hands. We confess our conviction that it is the very breath of God. And so we ask that you'd speak to us from it. Speak, O Lord. May your church hear and act in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Romans 9 verse 30 begins with a question. What shall we say then? Which sounds like a conclusion. And in a sense it is, but it's also a launching pad for what Paul is going to be talking about throughout chapter 10. We remember, should remember, that chapter divisions, as well as verse numbers for that matter, are not a part of the original manuscripts of Scripture. They were added in later. They're helpful, but they're not inspired. They help us identify where we are as we read through the Bible and as we study the Bible, but they're not inspired. And at certain times, it seems as though they're put in the wrong place. If it were me, it's not up to me, but if it were me, I would have placed the chapter division for chapter 10 right there at the beginning of verse 30. In fact, in my filing system, I've labeled this as instead of the last sermon going through chapter 9, it's the first sermon going through chapter 10. It closes out chapter 9, but it also launches us into what Paul is going to be talking about all throughout chapter 10. In chapter 9, Paul began discussing Israel. 
national, physical Israel. And he's going to continue to talk about Israel all the way through the end of chapter 11. And Paul begins his discussion about Israel at the beginning of chapter 9 by expressing sorrow. He says in verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my fellow kinsmen. Why such sorrow? Well, Paul is grieved because his fellow kinsmen in the flesh, his fellow Israelites for the most part, were now outside of the family of God. But how could that possibly be? Because after all, they are God's chosen nation. Aren't they God's elect? And so he begins to wrestle with this question, why are there so many unbelieving Jews? Now there's two answers to that question, one of which we already have answered. In the bulk of chapter 9, we've wrestled with the first answer to that question, which is not all Israel is Israel. That there is a national physical Israel, and Israel according to the natural descent from Abraham, but then there is also a spiritual Israel within that. And that those who are part of that spiritual true Israel are so, not because of anything about them, or because of anything that they do, or any action that they take, but they are a part of spiritual Israel simply because of God's sovereign choice of them to be part of spiritual Israel. And that's where, in Romans 9, we, we spent some time unpacking what Paul has to, has to say about, about God's sovereign and unconditional election of some from natural, national, physical Israel to be a part of true spiritual Israel. Israel. So the first reason, the first answer to the question, why are there so many unbelieving Jews, is because God has sovereignly chosen to elect some of them to be part of true spiritual Israel, but he has not elected all of them. And as we read last week in the verses just prior to this, the same is true for Gentiles. That we're included as well, that, that, that Gentiles are included in this, that God has sovereignly chosen to choose some from among the Gentiles as well to be part of true spiritual Israel, which for us is called the church of Jesus Christ. But there's another reason, there's a second answer to that question, why are there so many unbelieving Jews? And that second answer is what Paul begins to unpack in this passage leading into all of chapter 10. Now we should note, first of all, as we read through the passage that I just read through, we should note a return to some of the language that we saw earlier in this letter. Specifically, the language of righteousness. I don't know if you caught that or not. We haven't seen that in chapter 9. The word righteousness in the Greek, dikaios, the word righteous or righteousness or justified, which is, which is just another form of that Greek word, that word is found over 45 times in the first eight chapters of this letter. We've dealt with it often in this letter as we've been walking through Romans. 45 times. But in chapter 9, 
It's been conspicuously absent, hasn't it? We haven't seen that word or any form of that word at all in chapter 9 until we get to verse 30 this morning. And in the passage that we're looking at this morning, those eight verses at the end of chapter 9, the beginning of chapter 10, we see it six more times. So clearly, Paul is now returning full circle to the larger context of what he's been talking about in this letter. He's still talking about Israel, and he's going to continue to talk about Israel through the end of chapter 11. But he's tying together, he's connecting this discussion about Israel back to what he said earlier in this letter about our need for righteousness. So I want to show you that connection this morning because it's very important. And I love it because it returns us to the heart of the gospel. So look at verse 30 again. Paul asks, what shall we say then? Then he says what we should say. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. So he's contrasting two groups. He's contrasting the believing Gentiles of his day with the unbelieving Israelites of his day. The saved Gentiles with the unsaved Israelites. Now we know, of course, that there are both believing and unbelieving populations of both of those groups. Right? There are believing and unbelieving Gentiles, and there are believing and unbelieving Israelites, then and today. But what Paul is doing here is contrasting those from among the Gentiles whom God has sovereignly saved, and he's contrasting them with those from among natural, physical Israel from whom God did not save those whom God did not save from that group. And what does he say about each of them? It's an interesting contrast. He says, the believing Gentiles did not pursue righteousness, but they attained it. And the Israelites who did pursue righteousness did not attain it. Now, what does all that mean? Well, before we dive into that, we have to see here why this concept of righteousness is so important. Why did the Israelites pursue it? And why is it such a big deal that the believing Gentiles, though they did not pursue it, they attained it? Why is it so important? Why is righteousness so important? This, this gets us back to the first three chapters of this letter. In chapter 1, Paul told us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. The wrath of God, the anger of God, is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. In other words, without righteousness, and if you remember when we went through those chapters, we loosely defined righteousness as being good enough, right? Being good enough to be accepted into God's presence. Being good enough to earn the right to be with him. Good enough to earn his favor. Good enough to be reconciled to God. And so when Paul says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, he's telling us that without righteousness, we will incur the wrath of God because we don't have righteousness. And that's a bad thing. Then in chapter two, we learned that It gets even worse because 
we who don't have righteousness can't earn it. We can't earn it by anything that we do. We can't earn it by doing good works. We can't earn it by following the law. We can't earn it by any kind of religious exercise or practice like circumcision or baptism or, or any of that. We can't earn righteousness. So we fundamentally don't have it. We can't earn it. And then chapter 3, he lowered the boom and said, we're all in the same boat here. He said in verses 10 through 12 of, of Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. It's a very encouraging passage there in Romans 3. But as we walk through those first three chapters, we, we understand that all of us are unrighteous. We have a complete and utter lack of righteousness. And because of that, we deserve judgment. We deserve God's wrath. And the wrath of God is going to be revealed against our unrighteousness. So this is why Paul says, back to chapter 9, verse 31, this is why Paul says that this national physical Israel... They pursued a law leading to righteousness. Why? Because they knew the consequences of not having righteousness. And so they pursued it. But how did they pursue it? They pursued it, as Paul says, by following a law. Hoping that the law would lead to righteousness. But there are two problems with that plan. The first problem is that righteousness could never be attained by following the law. And second of all, the problem is that that was never the intent of the law in the first place. That was never the purpose of the law. Listen to what Paul says later in Romans 3, verses 19 through 20. After saying, none is good, no, not one, no one is righteous, he says this, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the purpose of the law, according to Paul in these verses, is to show us our sin, to show us our complete and utter lack of righteousness, and to show us how far we fall short of the righteousness that is required if we are to escape the wrath of God. The law is given so that we who think we might have a reason to boast in our own righteousness, that our mouths might be stopped, just stopped. And we may see that we are held accountable to God. But the law was not given so that we might be able to earn righteousness. That's not why the law was given. That's what we just read out of verse 20. From Romans 3, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Again, the word justified being a form of the Greek word for righteous, dikaios, justified. No, no one will be declared righteous or justified because they're keeping the law, because of works of the law. We can't earn righteousness by following the law as if it were a work that resulted in righteousness. And that's exactly what the unbelieving Israelites were doing as Paul describes them in Romans chapter 9. And that's why they failed in attaining righteousness. Look at verses 31 and following. 
He says, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. And why is that? Verse 32, because they did not pursue it by faith, but, but as if it were based on works. So because they pursued the law and they pursued it as a work, not faith, then they didn't achieve it. They didn't attain it. So what was the result of them doing this? Verse, second half of verse 32, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, this is a quote from a couple of different places in Isaiah, where where Isaiah is prophesying about Yahweh sending a Messiah. And he says that this Messiah, who's going to be like a stone laid in Zion, which is where, which is another word for Jerusalem, is where Jesus was crucified that this Messiah would be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He's referring, of course, to Jesus here, the Christ. And we see that if we skip down to verse 4 of chapter 10. So look look at chapter 10, verse 4 with me real quickly. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law. Now, when he uses the word end there, he doesn't mean the end of existence, The word means the goal or the point or the purpose. When the Westminster Catechism asks its first question, what is the chief end of man? It's not asking about the end of man's existence. It's asking about the point or the goal or the purpose of man's existence, which is to enjoy God and glorify God and enjoy him forever. The NIV translates this phrase as Christ is the culmination of the law. So when Paul says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, he's not saying that the law is no more, that the law is abrogated now that Christ has come, now that the Messiah has come. Jesus himself said at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, I did not come to abolish the law, but to what? To fulfill it. To fulfill the law, the life, death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ does not mean an end to the law. It means a fulfillment of the law because Christ is the end, the goal, the point, the purpose of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. But the Israelites missed that. For the most part, they they didn't get that. They, They missed that. It was pointed to in the Old Testament and the prophets But they missed that. They missed the point of the law. They missed the goal of the law. They were so focused on the law itself that they missed the whole point of the law. Jesus is the proverbial forest, and the law is the proverbial trees, and the Israelites missed the forest for the trees. In this passage, Paul seeks to explain this by using the analogy of stumbling by quoting from Isaiah that Jesus Christ is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. How does that analogy go? Well, it's, it's like if you're walking down a path in the woods and you're so focused on following that path, staying within its boundaries, making sure that you're following, you're so focused on that path that you miss the goal of the path the point of the path. And the goal of the path is a rock. 
and the path is meant to take you to the rock. But you're so intent on following the path that instead of recognizing that the point of the path is to take you to the rock, you stumble over the rock. You trip over the rock. And then you're mad at the rock. And you shake your head at the rock. And you shake your fist at the rock. And you curse the rock. But then eventually you get back to just following the path, right? See, the path is the law. And and, and the point of the law was to show us that we can't follow the path perfectly. But Jesus, the rock, was put on the path, and he followed it perfectly. He was perfectly obedient, perfectly righteous. And when we encounter Jesus on the path, we are to conclude, hey, he's what the path is pointing to. He's what the path is all about. He's the fulfillment of the path's existence. He's the reason for the path. So the point of the path is not just to try and follow it, but to see that we can't follow it and to trust the one who did. But Paul says, unfortunately, that that's not, for the most part, that's not how the Israelites reacted to Jesus Instead, they stumbled over him, and they shook their head at him, and they shook their fist at him, and they stumbled over him, and he became for them a rock of offense. They were offended by him, and they rejected him, but then in time, they just got back to following the path. They did then, and they do for the most part still today, following the path. But as Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verse 7, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's what the Israelites did. They rejected the stone, but the stone that they rejected was the cornerstone. It's what, what the path was all about in the first place. And this breaks Paul's heart. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. So just as he lamented over the lost and hopeless condition of his fellow kinsmen in the flesh at the beginning of chapter 9, so also he does here at the beginning of chapter 10. My heart's desire and prayer for them, brothers, is that they may be saved. And then Paul tells us part of why they hold such a place in his heart. Look at verse 2. He says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They have a zeal for God. Paul says, I love their zeal for God. They're zealous for the Lord, and I love that about them. The problem is, for Israelites, they measured zealousness for God in works, not in faith. Having great zeal for God meant accomplishing something great for God that you could wear as a badge of honor to show how serious you were about standing up for him. Paul himself describes his pre-conversion zeal for God in Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, he is talking about how we need to be careful about putting confidence in the flesh, that is, 
in our works and in our religious advantage. Instead, we should place our confidence in Christ, our substitute, and our righteousness. He says in Philippians 3, beginning in verse 4, he says, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, confidence in their works, confidence in their religious advantage, if anyone thinks they have reason to find confidence in that, I have more. And then he begins to list his confidence in the flesh. Circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. So Paul, before he came to faith in Christ, he was very zealous for God. He had great zeal for Yahweh. And it was demonstrated in his great act of zealousness, which was persecuting followers of the way, persecuting Christians. And he wore that as a badge of honor, demonstrating his zeal for God. Let's read on. He says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So he was really good at following the path. But neither his zeal for God nor his path following were, as Paul says in Romans 10, were according to knowledge. But then Jesus showed himself, as we know, to Paul. On the road to Damascus, as Paul was on his way to persecute more Christians, Jesus showed up in a blinding light, and what did he do? He gave Paul knowledge of him as Messiah. Look at verses 7 through 9 of that passage out of Philippians 3. It says, but whatever gain I had, what is, what is that gain? The religious works, the religious advantage, whatever gain I had from that, I, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That's the knowledge that, that the unbelieving Israelites didn't have. They, they had a zeal, but not according to knowledge. What knowledge? The knowledge of Christ Jesus as Lord. Paul says, I, I consider all that stuff as loss for the for, for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, he says, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. All those works, all that religious advantage, I count that as trash. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And here's the connection back to Romans. And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now tie that back to Romans 10. The Israelites had this zeal for God. They were very zealous for God. And for the most part, that was demonstrated in their path following. But their zeal was not according to knowledge. And instead of having the knowledge that Jesus was the chief cornerstone, instead they tripped over that rock. They stumbled over him and got offended by him, but then eventually got back to path following. Listen to how Paul describes them in verse 3 of chapter 10. He says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. 
So the Israelites tried to establish their own righteousness by following the law. And so they missed God's righteousness. Neither did they attain their own righteousness. They missed God's righteousness. And Paul says God's righteousness is made available only by faith in Jesus Christ. Again, this takes us back to Romans chapter 3 in the heart of the gospel. We left off with verse 20. By works of the law, no human being will be justified, declared righteous in his sight. Now verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God, not the righteousness of man, that we try to achieve by our works, but now the righteousness of, righteousness of God has been manifested Apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, they pointed to it, the Israelites, for the most part, tragically just missed it. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that is declared righteous, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. There's a lot there. We, we, don't, we don't have any righteousness of our own. None. None of us do. We're all in the same boat there. None of us is righteous. We all fall short. And because we don't have any righteousness, we all deserve the wrath of God. It's going to be poured out against all sin and unrighteousness. And it gets worse because we can't earn righteousness through anything that we do, through following the law, through doing good works, through religion, through spirituality, through anything. We cannot earn it. We need an alien righteousness. We, we, we need a righteousness that is not ours, that is given to us. We need God himself to come and give us the righteousness that we could never earn ourselves. And that's exactly what God has done for us in sending his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived the life that we could never live. He was perfectly obedient to the Father. He was perfectly righteous. He was a perfect path follower. Perfect actions, perfect words, perfect in his thought life, perfect in all of his motives, Absolutely, completely, perfectly righteous. And he was put to death in our place. And he paid the price that we deserve to pay so that those who place their faith in him might be forgiven of their sin and given by faith his righteousness, credited to our account as if it were ours now. Because it is. This alien righteousness becomes ours. This is the imputation of righteousness from Christ. And his righteousness, imputed to us by faith, and his sacrificial death on the cross for us, satisfies God's wrath against our unrighteousness. That's what the word propitiation in verse 25 means. It, it, it means that which satisfies another's anger or wrath. God is righteous and just and right in his anger against our rebellion and unrighteousness. 
But the righteousness of Jesus credited to us by faith and his sacrificial death on our, in our place satisfies, by faith, it satisfies God's righteous wrath against our rebellion. That church is such good news. Apart from that, we stand rightly under God's wrath against sin and unrighteousness because we don't have any righteousness. That is such incredibly good news. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 2, excuse me, 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who knew no sin, who's that? Jesus, to become sin on the cross for us. That's when he drank the cup of God's wrath. To become sin for us so that in him, in Christ, by faith, we might become the righteousness of God. Not clothed with our own good works and attempts at righteousness, but clothed with the very righteousness of Jesus. As only ours by faith. And, 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 and at the end of the day, that is the fundamental difference between the two groups that Paul is contrasting here at the end of chapter 9. That's the, that's the fundamental difference between the, the believing Gentiles and the unbelieving Israelites. Faith in Jesus Christ. The Gentiles didn't pursue righteousness. They didn't even have the law, much less follow the law. But they attained righteousness. And Paul clarifies that. They attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But tragically, the Israelites, they pursued the law, but they, and they pursued it with zeal. They zealously followed the path, but they missed the whole point of it. They thought that the point of the law was to achieve one's own righteousness. But in reality, it was to show us and to show them their need for an alien righteousness. And when Jesus was placed in the path, instead of seeing him as the purpose of the path, that which the path points to, they stumbled over him and were offended by him and just kept following the path. Whereas by God's grace, some of the Gentiles and consequently also some of the Jews at, at some point saw Jesus as the end of the law, the point, the purpose of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And they came to faith in Jesus as their substitute, as their redeemer, as their rescuer, their savior, their Lord, as the one who vicariously satisfied the holy wrath of God against the unrighteousness of man by being their one and only and sufficient source of righteousness. And so back to Paul's original question that we looked at this morning, the question that, that he implicitly posed at the beginning of chapter 9. Why are there so many unbelieving Jews? The first answer that we looked at in the bulk of chapter 9, not all Israel is Israel. God, according to his sovereignty, has unconditionally elected some from among national physical Israel to also be a part of spiritual Israel. He has sovereignly chosen to set his saving grace on some within natural physical Israel. But answer number two to why 
there are so many unbelieving Jews is because they did not attain righteousness. They didn't attain their own righteousness by following the law, never could. But they also, because they were so intent on trying that and following that path, that they didn't see Jesus as the cornerstone. And they didn't turn to Jesus as their only and sufficient source of righteousness by faith. Answer number one had to do with God's sovereignty, and that's a lot of what we spent our time unpacking in chapter 9. The sovereignty of God in the unconditional election of some from among the Gentiles and the Jews. Whereas the answer to number two, Paul now switches gears and begins to talk about man's responsibility. And this is is where he's going to start camping out now in the bulk of chapter 10. Man's responsibility. Our responsibility. And our responsibility is to respond to this good news, this gospel, in faith. As he says at the end of verse 4 there, to everyone who believes. And the Greek word for believe is, the, is simply the verb form of the Greek word for faith. To everyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ. Everyone who believes on Jesus. And so we'll see a lot of this in chapter 10. Next week we're going to cover the next few verses as he talks about how, how this righteousness becomes ours by faith. How does that actually happen? Then the week after that, we'll talk about how the, how the message of righteousness by faith is communicated from one person to the other and the kingdom of God built. And as we do this, we're going to be focusing more on man's responsibility in this whole thing as opposed to God's sovereignty. In chapter 9, for the most part, we spent our time talking about God's sovereignty in salvation. Now we're switching gears to talk about man's responsibility. Now we can debate about which one takes precedence, right? There are some who would, who would elevate man's responsibility over God's sovereignty. There are others, myself included, who would elevate God's sovereignty over man's responsibility. Because after all, if God is sovereign, he's sovereign over all. If he's sovereign at all, he's sovereign over all. But we can debate about which one takes precedence, but in the end, we must confess that they both exist. They're both necessary. In order for one to be saved, both must happen. God must sovereignly and unconditionally choose you to be a part of his elect and you must place your faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope. Got to have them both. They're both essential. But here's the beautiful thing. You really can't have one without the other. They always both go together. So don't worry. Nobody's ever going to get to heaven and find out that although they were elected by God to be saved, they never completed the act by professing their faith in Jesus. Nobody's ever going to be found in that situation. Neither is anybody ever going to be found in heaven saying, you know what, I profess faith in Jesus Christ, but I don't make the cut because I wasn't a part of his elect. That's never going to happen. 
all of the elect will come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's, that's Romans 8, 29 and 30. All those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. On all those whom he predestined, he also called. That's the effectual call to faith in Christ. And all those whom he called, he also justified. And all those whom he justified, he also glorified. None is lost. All those whom he foreknew and predestined and called, they're going to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And we're going to find out how that's going to happen in Romans 10. And conversely, all those who genuinely come to faith in Jesus Christ as their only hope to be rescued from what we all deserve are already part of the elect, or else they would not come to faith in Jesus Christ. How, how do we apply a passage like this? The application, I believe, to a passage like this simply has to do with what, we, what we're going to do with Jesus what are we going to do with Jesus? Will we trust in him as our righteousness or will we stumble over him as we seek to achieve our own righteousness? And by the way, this has application not just for unbelievers but for believers as well. Both can stumble over Jesus as our righteousness. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, and by that, you kind of have to define that, by that word, I mean you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope to be rescued from what we all deserve. And, and there, are, there are lots of flavors of unbelievers, right? There's a continuum, if you will. There are those who say, I don't even believe in God. I'm an, I'm an atheist. I don't, I don't even believe, I don't, I don't, not only do I not believe the Bible, I don't, I don't believe the God that you say wrote the Bible. But then there are also the kind of unbelievers who are sitting in churches in America, and for that matter, all over the world this morning. And they're basing their identity as a believer in Jesus Christ on their work, on their path following, if you will. Their religious exercise, if you will. And if that describes you this morning, then you're at risk of being like one of the unbelieving Israelites. Being so focused on path following that you miss, miss the point of the path. That you fail to see the purpose of the path is to show you that you can't perfectly follow it. And that Jesus is given as the righteousness that we could never earn on our own and that that righteousness can be yours by faith in Jesus Christ. And so if that describes you this morning, then my exhortation to you is to trust in Christ as your only hope for rescue from what we all deserve. Trust in Jesus to be your righteousness. But if you're a believer this morning, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you see, we, we too run the risk of stumbling over Jesus. That's what the Galatians did, right? The Galatians stumbled over Jesus. They came to faith in Jesus Christ, saving faith in Christ. But then they were tempted to trade in their faith in Jesus Christ in favor of their works and their performance for God as the basis for their daily righteousness and their daily 
sustaining before God. But the grace that saves is the same grace that sanctifies. And the basis of us, you and I as believers in Jesus Christ, the basis, the root of us standing before a holy God today and in the next life is not our ability to be a good Christian, is not our ability to be a good path follower, but our basis, our root of standing in front of a holy and righteous God today is the righteousness of his Son credited to our account by faith. And so let us persevere not in performing for him so that we can be righteous. Let us persevere in our faith in Jesus Christ as our righteousness for us. Would you pray with me?